Hi there, Editing Ravi coming to you from the future. Just wanted to issue a couple of notes in relation to this episode of Two Lost Souls that you are about to hear. In relation to the KSA, um, while we originally stated that we were going to do an entire episode dedicated to it, we felt that it only really merited half an episode in terms of coverage, um, and we're hoping that actually this shows that the KSA isn't the big terrifying beast that it can sometimes be built up to be, given that we can squeeze um, pretty much all the content that we have on it into half an episode. Speaking of the KSA segment of today's show, um, you may notice that the audio quality changes when we get to that part of the show. We did record it in person, however, due to some technical issues, we ended up having to re-record the entire segment remotely, which is why we start to sound slightly different. Um, but we wanted to be upfront and honest with you about that. Um, we hope you enjoy the episode uh, that's about to come up or um, at least find it very informative and if you have any questions or concerns about anything that comes up um, in today's show drop us a line via the usual channels um, and we hope you enjoy listening. Hi I'm Ravi and I'm Shell and you're listening to Two Lost Souls, the podcast that guides you through the journey to becoming a CBT therapist. Good afternoon, good evening, whenever and wherever you are listening. Welcome to the Two Lost Souls podcast. The title of today's episode is How Do I Get In? I am your host, Ravi Amrith, and in today's show, we will be discussing our top tips for navigating the selection process and doing the dreaded KSA. Um, but let me begin by saying that this is your podcast guide to surviving a high-intensity CBT course. We pride ourselves on creating a safe space for trainees, qualified therapists, and those who are just generally curious. Honesty is our policy, and we tell it how we see it, but we would love to hear your views too. Uh, as usual, I am joined uh, in the therapy room today by our fabulous co-host, Michelle Sudbury. How's it going, Michelle? Really good, Ravi. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. How are things going? Very well, yeah. Having a, a good week again this week, so oh, good. that's nice. Productive? Very. Getting a lot done. Oh, amazing. That's really good to hear. Just uh, before we move on with the rest of the episode, let me remind all of you out there that if you have any particular questions or topics that you would like to see covered, reach out to us on Twitter at TLS underscore pod or by email at twolostsoulspodcast at gmail.com. Mm. 
today's episode looking at the application process, the selection process and the KSA. Let's go in sort of chronological order, shall we? So um, what are your reflections on the application process that you went through, Shell? So I think like I mentioned last week, I, I didn't really go through a traditional um, application route. Mm-hmm. Um, so that maybe you would be better kind of give your experience because I think you went much more traditional didn't you yeah um my memories um of it were being quite intense um and quite some of it uh I would say up to a point was maybe a little bit repetitive as well in terms of I had to fill out um a personal statement sort of application form for the university and do the same sort of thing for for the placement as well um there was interviews for both elements of the of the process as well there Mm -hmm. was an academic screening test um so it was quite intensive there were quite a few hoops to go through and i think at the time i felt um like it was quite a rigorous screening process it it served as quite a useful refresher actually for actually getting onto the course and made me feel a bit more confident about my skills in in terms of getting onto it yeah i I think um, I would totally agree with you. It can be very repetitive. Um, so I, I've obviously had the privilege of being on the recruiting end, um, w- which I know you've not experienced. So from that perspective, um, it is beginning to change in some areas. So I, I know that the university that I attended and, and where our current trainees are at, mm-hmm. um, there's a dual interview process now. So it, it removes that repetitive having an interview with your placement provider and then going on to have an interview with the university but some services won't have that in place Mm -hmm. so yeah you you have to go through lots of kind of you have to jump through lots of hoops unfortunately um and you can fall at any stage which is is, can be quite demoralizing um you can have a really great application that gets shortlisted and gets you through it can be very strong you can do really well at your placement interview mm-hmm. and then fail at the academic once you get to the university or fail at the interview level at right. the university. And if you fail at any of those points, unfortunately, that's your that's your journey over. Right. Of course. And um, you, you mentioned this this kind of element of, of a joint interview process kind of coming in more recently is yeah. there historically quite a lot of interface between the university and the placement provider during the selection process? There, there is. I think it, it's that's developing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, kind of more historically, you, the placement providers have usually had the the kind of privilege of picking people that they want to nominate, okay. if you like. Um, although there isn't a formal nomination process at that, that level, mm-hmm. but once we've identified people that we feel would be kind of valuable employees right. we then would support them in uh, submitting an application to the university mm-hmm. um, and going through that process and hopefully um, it all meeting together at the end um, but like I say sometimes it doesn't um, and you know if one of those elements doesn't come through then then that that's it um, your, your, your experience can be over quite quickly unfortunately right um what would you say your top tips are particularly uh, i suppose as you mentioned you're, you're kind of sitting on the other side of the table now and you're, you're yeah. part of that selection process what are, you, what are your top tips for people who are embarking on this process i think the golden rule is know what you're applying for mm-hmm. we 
it's it's kind of really funny but we get an awful lot of applications that are um people's skills are not being identified and it's almost as though they're not really sure what it, what it is they're applying for so do your research right if you've worked predominantly in children's services for example then don't just tell us about the work that you did with children because mm -hmm. we need to know how you're going to transfer those skills across to working in adult services have that um in your mind as you write your um supporting information mm -hmm. think about iapt if you don't know what iapt is go and find out there is a lot of information you only need to google and you can learn all about the history of iapt if you want to go into that you can read the current iapt manual i'm not saying it's a fun and exciting read but it's <laughs> knowledgeable there's a lot of stuff in there that will support you um in understanding what what it is you're going to be doing for your career uh, and if we get applications where clearly people don't really understand what it is they're applying for mm. then you're very unlikely to be shortlisted so you're not even going to get past that stage yeah. um read the person spec it's, it's really simple but read the person spec if you don't meet it don't apply um if you haven't got the relevant experience to meet a ksa then don't apply because mm. even if we like you the university won't accept you you've got to be able to meet their requirements as well um so do your research got you okay yeah research is a, um, an incredibly powerful thing and I, th I suppose it's sort of usual job interview rules apply in terms of making sure that you're fully equipped before you go into a scenario where you're Definitely. having to answer que questions about um, the organization that you're joining um, I suppose as well, a, a couple of things I wanted to kind of tag on to that as well was mentioning things like lived experience Definitely. can sometimes be quite a powerful thing. It, it really can. I think if you can provide some examples of your experiences of either th going through a mental health uh, system, um, whether that be positive or negative, you know, don't worry about telling us where, where you've been let down. Um, on what you would want to see happen differently, what you want to kind of make um, make different for other people. Mm. Do, do that, let us know. What I would say is that whilst having lived experience is incredibly valuable, and please share that, if you're currently going through um, a significant period of poor mental health, mm. it's really worth considering whether it, the timing is right for you to apply to do a course like this. Right. And and I and I say that from a, a kind of well-being perspective, because it does take a lot out of you, and yeah. it can be very mentally and physically demanding. So, it it may be that you want to kind of go and have a, some personal therapy, have some experience of that, and then come and apply. You know, when you're feeling um, in a, in a position where you're able to to kind of support your own mental health. Yeah. Um, before you try and support other people's mental health, because you, you can't do that if you're if you're kind of a little bit depleted yourself yeah i think i think a really key takeaway from that is that if you are not ready this year it doesn't mean that you're never going to be ready absolutely um and i think that um i think as shell said if you take the time to kind of look after what your needs are first i think it has um, potential to make you an even sort of stronger therapist actually in the future knowing that you've been through elements of the journey that clients might resonate with Oh Quite yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. It's in, it's incredibly valuable, yeah. um, and it will be a big part of your experience. But yeah. yeah, you need to be you need to be in the position to kind of look after yourself first. Yeah, definitely. In terms of definite do nots during the application process, what what sort of springs to mind? There are 
are a few things that are a real turn off mm -hmm. when we're shortlisting. And for me, it's kind of very clearly stating that this is a stepping stone move for you. Right. Um, I massively um, support people having careers and developing and and kind of get into a place that they want to get to. Mm. But equally, I support IAPT and I'm passionate about people coming into a role because they want to offer something um, to the population that they're serving um, and make their their kind of contribution to that um, really something special, mm -hmm. not just a stopgap. Um, so these aren't roles that I, I think people should go into lightly. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't see it as just a stepping stone into psychology, for example. Yeah, um, of course. And, yeah. And, and I think this role is one where you can really make a difference to people's lives particularly particularly if you embrace it and you run with it and um i think that the sort of key phrase really is you you sort of get out what you put in uh, yeah 100 percent. yeah um and i think if you sort of make the most of that that ethos and regard it as something as a real opportunity rather than something that you that's just kind of something that you're going to see on the way to something else yeah, um, I think that that is a really powerful way of, of approaching it. Um, one thing I wanted to sort of stress as well, as you were talking there, I got this quite vivid flashback in my mind to, to one of my interviews. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure whether it was sort of a PTSD flashback <laughs> type of thing. Um, that just, traumatic. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, the reason I say that is because it was of me maybe giving an answer that probably wasn't 100% correct okay. as part of the process. And uh, as we tend to do as, as human beings, I, I definitely remember sort of beating myself up over oh, the answer okay. um, after the interview had finished, particularly given that the, the interviewer that I had in that moment had kind of had informed me that maybe... Um, I wasn't quite the best informed um, in terms of the answer I was giving. And but was I this your, sorry, was this your uh, placement or your university interview? Uh, this was university interview. Oh, okay, okay. And so I think the thing to stress from that, though, is my sort of takeaway is that you don't need to be the finished product. I don't no. think, I don't think, um, and, and this is purely from my perspective, I can't obviously speak for any sort of admissions teams or, or teachers out there. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that universities are always looking for people um, who know um, the sort of CBT treatment manual inside out. Um, yeah. And I think they're, they're quite keen, actually, sometimes to take on people who, although they've got some experience, they might have some gaps in their knowledge and they can kind of see potential uh, for growth there. Yeah, of course. Um, you, you're not going to university because you, you know everything. That's mm. not the point of, of being there. Yeah. The point is, is that you're going with a, a willingness to learn, mm -hmm. uh, a kind of open-minded attitude and uh, an enthusiasm um, to do the very best that you can do whilst you're there. So, and I think one of the lovely things about CBT in, in particular is that imperfection mm. and getting things wrong isn't necessarily um, looked down on yeah. because it's the whole ethos of CBT, right? We, we're going to get it wrong. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess it up. Mm. And when that happens, it's it's kind of our interpretation of what that means about us as people or what we've done. Um, and I would like to think that a good, 
a good university or a good placement provider would absolutely look at that as being a, a, a positive. Yeah. Um, it's a growth opportunity, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Um, in terms of the sort of interview side of things, what, what, mm. what are the top tips that you think we haven't covered so far that you'd, you'd sort of like to add for, for anyone listening in terms of just purely the interview side of I, I think it's that the interview process is not dissimilar to other interview processes. So mm. it kind of like like you said earlier, um, the standard things that you would expect. So be prepared, um, ask useful questions. Mm. I, I think, you know, when you get that opportunity at the end, when we, we say, have you got anything you would like to ask? If all you if all you kind of come back with is, oh, how much am I going to get paid? Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's not really that exciting a question to answer. Mm. So have a think about, you know, what are you really hoping to get from this experience? Have you got any genuine uh, kind of gaps in your knowledge about what the role might look like that we could help you with now? Um, yeah, and good eye contact. Be friendly. Um, you're going to be working with people. So yeah. We want to see how you interact with people. Mm. Um, and at the end of the day that's what we are when we're interviewing you with just other people at the end of a you know a screen or face to face if you're lucky enough to have that experience so show us how you interact bring those skills into the room we appreciate nerves um everybody gets nervous and that's absolutely fine and i think like you said you, you you're not there to be perfect if you don't know something say so don't yeah. bluff your way through mm-hmm. um but be enthusiastic about going and finding out um but yeah, it's exactly the same as all of the interview processes, I think. Yeah. And I think it's also um, quite an important thing to remember that if you've got to the stage of getting an interview, there would have been certain things in your application or certain skills and experience you have that have sort of merited that. And I think it's important to remember the skills and experience you have had yes. in the past and, and sort of leverage those and, and and use them to your advantage in terms of the knowledge you, that you do have um, and, and don't yeah. worry about kind of coming in and feeling as though you're a complete blank canvas because you're not yeah no that, that's really true uh, you're right we, we've seen something in in our shortlisting haven't we that's that's meant that you've gotten to this stage mm. so run with that okay um in amongst all of the interviews um, and sort of face-to-face elements of, of the process, mm-hmm. um, there is also the question of an academic test Ooh. on the university <laughs> side of things. <laughs> yeah, the academic test. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's the thing that strikes fear into the heart of every mm. um, applicant, isn't it? It's, it's, it's mysterious and mystical and nobody really knows what to expect. Mm. Um, I think so the the experience I had um I was asked to um kind of critique a, a journal um or a piece of research and I'd never done anything like that before I I'd come from a degree um so I was a counselor by um by background mm-hmm. and uh, and kind of that that just wasn't an element that was included in my degree so I was very shocked yeah. um and I think I mentioned last week I I my, my turnaround was really quick so I hadn't a lot of time to prepare I didn't have time to go and talk to people to say what what should I expect right. so I was really very surprised when I turned up and this was the the task actually on reflection it wasn't difficult um mostly it's common sense and I think if you breathe take your time read the questions um 
and kind of think about it in a very logical way. What are they asking me to do here? Mm. Um, you don't need to get kind of bamboozled by all of the strange figures and jargon that's within the, the piece of research because actually that isn't what they're asking you to do. They're not looking necessarily for your ability to understand long words. Mm. Um, what they're looking for is your ability to interpret the question and then go and investigate and be curious. Um, and curiosity is one of the most important things for a CBT therapist. Yeah. So it's a very good test, actually. Yeah, 100%. I, I completely agree with that. Um, I can also acknowledge, though, that there may be some people who are entering this process who haven't come from an academic background yes um and who maybe haven't had the opportunity to to maybe look at a journal article or something like that before yeah um and i was wondering just in terms of a technique on being able to critique um research papers or or, okay. or articles have you ever heard of grave before i don't know i don't think so ah okay well this is handy so um grave is an acronym that we can really quite nicely use to demonstrate some of the things that people might want to look for okay. in a research paper. Okay. Um, and research papers are obviously the most enjoyable things on earth, <laughs> hence the, the, the jaunty music bed we've got in the background. I like it. But G stands for generalizability, which is one of those annoyingly long words that we're probably trying to avoid. It is. Uh, but it essentially asks how well can the findings of a piece of research be applied to other people within a population. Okay. So let's just say if a study only has seven people uh, taking part in it, all of whom are male within the ages of 18 to 25 and from one street in a suburb of Paris, um, the, reflect, uh, the research findings may not really transfer over to people who are within a different demographic for example yeah. uh, the r stands for reliability so would you get the same results if you did the test over and over again so for any of you listeners who went to uh, a primary school or high school in the uk where you did science and you had to do every experiment three times to make sure it was a fair test yeah it's essentially that sort of thing okay um applicability so does it relate to something that happens in real life does it influence therapeutic practice in any oh, way okay. um and does it provide evidence for an existing theory or is it something completely new that we've never discovered before right the v in grave stands for validity so are we sure that the thing we have measured has changed because of the thing we have manipulated basically yeah. um so for example if a cohort of 100 people have reduced anxiety symptoms from a research trial involving CBT change methods, what has the researcher doing uh, the piece of research done to ensure that it's CBT that's made the change and not something else? Yes, yeah, it hasn't just happened by coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and E stands for ethics. So did the study have ethical approval? Were there any particular ethical procedures or protocols that were followed? Wow, that's very interesting. I wish I'd known that. And that is grave. Um, there is a great resource actually on Pavlov's blogs um, that I will link to in the show notes as well. So uh, if anybody likes the concept of grave is just having a little bit of a framework to critically evaluate a paper, um, they can read more about that there. That's brilliant. Thanks. You're very welcome. <laughs> um, let's take a short break and uh, we will be back very shortly. 
Welcome back to this episode of Two Lost Souls. So before the break, we spoke uh, a lot about the process of getting on to the high intensity course. So the application process, the academic test, interviews, etc. Um, and now let's move on to a topic that lots of people are, are really concerned about. And um, I was speaking to a few trainees who said that it actually got to the point where this almost put them off applying. Um, so I think it's really important for, for us to, to cover this as, as part of the show. And, and that is the, the KSA. Now, KSA stands for Knowledge, Skills and Attitude. Um, and it takes the form of a, of a portfolio and a compilation of various documents um, that you've accrued over the years of, of your work um, and essentially combined into this rather large um piece of evidence that you submit to the BABCP um what was your recollection of the of the KSA process shell yeah so um i hadn't completed my KSA before i applied for the course um and i know some people do that so they start working on theirs sometimes years in advance uh, compiling all of the information but i hadn't done that um and it is a huge uh, task to do right at the beginning of your training year. I was very lucky in that, I don't know whether it was just that it was all a bit lax or <laughs> I just got away with it, but I didn't actually hand mine in until two weeks before the end of the training year. Uh, but it doesn't work like that anymore. You have to have it completed, um, all your evidence is signed off, all your references there, um, normally within the first two weeks. So yeah, was that your experience? Yeah, it was. Um, I remember being quite concerned by the process. Um, I definitely remember thinking that I wouldn't pass it. And I, to be honest, I wasn't quite sure what needed to go into it beforehand. Yeah. Um, there is obviously a lot of guidance on the BABCP website, um, but it's quite arduous to go through and it's quite difficult to kind of unpick what actually needs to go in there as a document, I think. It is. And it always surprises me when you say how worried you were about it, because you've got quite a vast um, working experience with being in supporting roles, mental health type roles. And I'd literally just done a bit of counselling. Um, and I wasn't worried about that at all. I was very confident that I would have enough uh, content to fill it. I think it's surprising when you actually start to break it down. Um, how much you do know and what it is you have done in your past there'll be so much that you've done that is a transferable skill and as long as you can evidence it then you've got something for your portfolio for your KSA. 100% I think on reflection it was definitely a very affirming process um, mm -hmm. so knowing that I had worked in mental health for, for quite a long period of time um, and completed loads of sort of e-learning and CPD stuff that felt like it was just sort of disappearing into a black hole or as if it was just a, um, a tick box exercise at the time. Yeah. It was nice to be able to actually reflect on the knowledge and, and the courses um, and e-learning things that I had done and also mm -hmm. use the certificates for something as well. I thought that was quite um, a powerful thing to, to do. Um, you spoke there about um, kind of the level of things that need to go into the KSA. Um, what about sort of the referees? What, what sort of guidance is there on that? Um, I would encourage people to use as broad a range of uh, references as possible. Don't rely on just a few people. 
um, try and kind of contact lots of different people. You have to be really on their back sometimes because their sense of urgency may be very different to yours and the universities. Um, so it's stressing to them how important it is that they get it back to you in a timely fashion. Um, and also, I think sometimes it's useful if you can show them what it is you're looking for. So send across an example um, for them to, to use as a bit of a template and a guide. Mm-hmm. It come, I, I mean, I've been on the other end of the process and I've been asked to provide references towards a KSA. Um, and you can be a little bit stumped as to what to write, you know, what's appropriate. Does it need to be um, a few paragraphs? Does it need to be an essay? Um, so give them a bit of guidance. And there are examples all over the BABCP website, but also look for kind of live real life examples of your peers, your um, other people on the course who may have some examples as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, Shell mentioned they're reaching out to a, a, a wide range of references. So in terms of the sort of minimum requirements of the portfolio, you need a minimum of two different referees throughout the portfolio. You, so you, you can't just have one person sign everything off. There needs to be um, at least one other um, alongside that. Um, when it comes to sort of the lengths of statements as well, I was pleasantly surprised when it came to receiving feedback from my portfolio that um, people didn't need to sort of write war and peace in terms of their oh, no. um, in terms of their references and this and um, sort of the countersigned statements and things like that. Um, as long as you've got two pieces of evidence or two pieces, uh, two examples rather um, for mm-hmm. each criterion um, and almost treating them like a um, competency based job application. So those sort of yes. applications that sort of say, think of a time when you did X or Y um, and using that as the basis to formulate what you're going to write in response to that particular criterion, I thought was quite a helpful way of approaching it. Yeah, definitely. And if you put too much information, I think, you know, consider how boring it's going to be for the person who has to mark all of these. There may be 30 people on the, in the cohort. Um, and to go through all of those KSAs, it's going to be quite an arduous task. So um, keep it succinct. Make sure you're only putting in the information they're asking for. Um, don't deviate off because actually you might be stealing away information that you need for another of the um, uh, of the requirements. So, yeah, keep it brief. Definitely. Um, It's also worth noting, so we spoke about it being quite a reflective and affirming experience. Also worth mentioning that you need to write a a biography as well um, as part of that process, which will be uh, maybe slightly longer than some of the other statements that are in there because it tracks your entire journey um, from from the start to where you where you're at at this point um, at the time of application as well. Um, just before we kind of move on, um, there was a, a handy tip that you had about the BABCP templates as well and, and spell check yeah. that I know you wanted to share. Yeah, so the all of the forms that you need to uh, put into your KSA are available on the BABCP website and you can populate them directly from there. But I would um, suggest that you don't and type everything into a Word document first because it will be spell checked. Um, I found out the hard way that that doesn't happen if you if you do it on the on the sheets that are on the BABCP website. Um, and then you have to go back and check all of your spelling and grammar 
Um, and if you can get a bit of support with that, why not? Um, so yeah, copy paste is your friend. Definitely. Um, and just sort of going back to the, the evidence that you can submit as well. Um, we spoke earlier about things like mandatory training and e-learning certificates and things like that, but also things like yeah. job descriptions and sort of self-directed study logs can be quite powerful to include there as well. Absolutely. And I think if you come across one of the criterion and you really are struggling to come up with some evidence, go and have a look at what piece of training you could do um, in order to fulfil it. So I had to do a, um, a short course um, on future future learn i think mm -hmm. um and it it met the criteria it was a i think it was a three-hour course um self-directed it was completely free didn't have to pay for it but it, it was sufficient and it, it meant that i had the the evidence um so just go go and have a look and see what's out there there's an awful lot that will support you in in meeting all of the criterion yeah um, and if you are worried that you aren't going to meet a particular criterion I think it's also really important to raise it early um, and yeah definitely I, I think it's important to know that academic teams are usually quite supportive um, and will give you the time and space to make considerations and improve your skills so you can fulfill that criterion as well um one thing um, I thought was quite useful to mention as well is that obviously when you're on the course, you'll be working um, under the supervision of a, a BABCP registered um, therapist or will have um, supervision from a BABCP registered therapist. Sometimes it'd be quite useful to just ask to see an example of a portfolio um, because I think that takes a lot of the mystery out of it um, and you can really almost take the sting out of the tail um, and stop it from being this big monster in the corner um, once you've kind yeah. of seen one in the flesh. Definitely. And they will want to share it with you. I know whenever I'm asked um, if somebody can have a look through my KSA, so um, potential new students, I'm really proud of it. Um, I'll quite happily take it in and let them have a look through it. And if they find something useful, that's great. Um, so, yeah, please don't be afraid to ask. Definitely. Um, so we have um, obviously done what we can today to try and discuss um, elements of the KSA process with you. But if you have any further queries or any other concerns about the KSA, um, drop us a line on Twitter at TLS underscore pod uh, or by writing to our email address, which is two lost souls podcast at gmail.com. And speaking of emails, we like to have a route through our mailbag in this segment, which we like to call Socratic questions. This question comes from Caleb in Somerset, who says, I would really like to enrol onto a CBT course, but I'm slightly worried about the prospect of having therapy while I'm learning. Do trainees have to have therapy while they're training? Oh, very good question. Um, no, is the short answer. Um, it's not a requirement for a high intensity CBT course. Mm -hmm. I disagree with that, though. I think it probably should be. I think it can be very valuable. Um, the course itself is quite reflective anyway, but for me, there's something very powerful powerful about having spent some time in the opposite chair 
um, experiencing what it might be like to be the client, mm. um, how daunting it might be to come for that first appointment, being vulnerable, sharing things. So, I mean, I'm a fan of therapy anyway, so I do this job. Um, and I think it can be useful for most people. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind if it was a requirement, but sadly it isn't. Yeah. I yeah. mean, first first of all, key disclaimer, you're asking two therapists about whether you should have therapy. Um, <laughs> but also um, a couple of other things. I think firstly, it really does help you sell some concepts when you are a therapist, if you've been through um, the process and sat on sat in the other chair. Um, sometimes going through it allows you to, to really understand the rationale for doing things um, and really sell it better to your clients. But also, um, as you began to touch on there as well, Shell, um, sometimes, I mean, you will do role plays and experiential learning as part of the course, and you are encouraged um, on a lot of those occasions to turn those role plays into real plays. Um, and so even if you're not having therapy while you're training, chances are you will be asked to be quite reflective and actually talk about things that are happening in your personal life. And it may be worth reflecting on why you might not want to do that at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I really agree with that. I think that's a very good point. Um, what we what we want to do is take any stigma out of having therapy, don't we? It's really important that we promote it as a positive and useful thing. So, you know, it mightn't necessarily be CBT that you experience, but talking to somebody in a professional capacity might be might be a, a helpful thing to do yeah definitely um thank you for the question though caleb and if any of you would like to get in touch again feel free to reach out to us on twitter at tls underscore pod or our email address is two lost souls podcast at gmail.com Uh, but just to round off today's episode, if you have enjoyed or learned anything from today's show, please give us a follow uh, and let us know on Twitter at TLS underscore pod or by email at two lost souls podcast at gmail.com. Or if you can do, please consider donating to our Kofi at Kofi.com slash TLS underscore pod. Uh, links to all of those places are in the show notes and if there is someone you know who would benefit from hearing two lost souls please 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 share this show with them it is a really huge help to us but all that's left for me to do is say a quick thank you to michelle thanks ravi um, and say a big thank you to all of you for listening um, and just give you the news that this Halloween a new CBT clinic is opening um, specialising in treating zombies who have experienced PTSD. Dr Frank Enstein says he is gratefully looking forward to starting the clinic called The Reliving Dead. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> thank you for listening everyone and have a good week. Take care. Two Lost Souls was presented by Ravi Amrath and Michelle Sudbury. To get in touch, contact TLS underscore pod on Twitter or email Two Lost Souls Podcast at gmail.com.